It's really good to see all of you, uh, and I'm really excited about having this time together. We we don't have a mic tonight, but can everyone hear me? I think I know all of you, but I, I will just introduce myself briefly. I thought about going into a little bit, but I really want to get right into what we're going to be discussing our time together. So, um, I'm Andy Black. Uh, I moved here, my family moved here in May, and I'm so blessed, and we are so blessed to be a part of Second. Um, and I'm here in, in the capacity of directing the Lake some Ministry, which has been part of this church for 50 years. And so, um, so much of what we talk about is, is deeply interwoven to what it's like to be out there at Lake Mason and so much part and heart at the heart of the mission for Lake Mason. So, um, that's just a little about me. There might be other chances to, to tell you a little bit more about my own story. But uh, I really want to dive in, and I want to say something real quick at first, too. Uh, we already start with something that I definitely want your participation in here at the beginning. I tend to like to have oral conversation as we go along, but I also know that that can lead us down a whole lot of paths. And so what I would like to do is once we do that, I'm going to really just kind of talk for a while. And I hope, I really want to do my best to, to wrap that part up where we can just have some time for questions and some discussion. All right. Uh, <coughs> did everyone get this sheet? You should have a copy of the poem. This poem, uh, Piece of Wild Things, is by Wendell Berry. Um, I'm not sure how many times uh, since I've been here. I know I've heard Preston refer to Wendell Berry. Probably at least enough on one hand, maybe two. Um, so he's a familiar name to many of you. If you don't know, he, he's a farmer in Kentucky. He farms the land his family's own for generations. He left a promising career. I mean, he's still a tremendous writer. But he was in New York, left a promising career as a professional writer. A university professor, then moved back to Kentucky. But since then, he's written dozens of novels, books of poetry, and all kinds of essays. He's won um, national humanity awards in the humanities, and many consider him like one of our more important contemporary American prophets. The kinds of things he's been saying for decades now have changed many people's lives. He has been influenced other people who have done even more. They, they owe the way they have lived and the kinds of transformations they have to Wendell Berry. So let's, I want to do something. Please know as I'm doing this, this is going to be like what we've done in, in worship, like a little when we do, it's called Lexia Divina, when we read a passage of scripture a few times. Please do not think I'm equating this poem with scripture. Um, we are actually going to talk about scripture real briefly too. Um, but I want us to really spend a little bit of time as we open up with this poem. And it's a little hard to see in this photo, but just for context, you'll get those of you who had already looked at the poem, you mentioned that parent. So, most of you know this is at Lake Mason. Yeah, you can't see it. We have, I think, two herons that hang around out there, and that's the best photo I've ever been able to get it, because they, they're pretty skittish once we get around. Um, but I just wanted you to have that context. So what I'm going to do, I'll read this first and just listen. You've already had a chance to read it. Just listen the first time. When despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the woodrick rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought and grief. come into the presence of still water. And I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. Okay, I'm going to read it again. This time, listen for any echoes Scripture. Any, any, any echoes of the Bible as I read this? <coughs> when despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound in 
fear of what my life and my children's lives may be. I go and lie down where the Lord rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. <coughs> so, so for just a minute, um, can please share, just popcorn style, you know, put out any, just kind of say in the form of a phrase that you want to say in the text, in scripture or verse, if you know, uh, book, chapter, and verse, that's fine, but if there's just a phrase that reminds you of a phrase from the Bible, anyone?
fair. Now, just for myself, you know, I think about my, you know, my grandchildren, you know, and I think about you know, what kind of world they're living in. Just quick show of hands. Can anyone identify with what he describes in that first line about those feelings in the middle of the night? I didn't see who wasn't holding your hands up, but I'm not going to put you on the spot to explain yourselves. <clears throat> anyone else? Water 
our common home. So again, we, we lead off focusing by the, the you know, maybe we all kind of metaphorically got a chance to lie down beside some still waters, but um, as you probably expected, we do need to kind of dive into the, the despair and the fear a little bit. Um, <clears throat> so you'll notice in the title that you don't see the phrase climate change, right, or crisis, anything like that. It's not where we're starting, and that's not the first word or the last word we want to say, but that is where we're going as we, as we set the stage tonight. So, a couple of things. <coughs> Got a big mouthful of a word right here, and I apologize for that, um, but it says anthropogenic climate change is the heading for this. This is one of those words that really is like a, you know, a $5,000 word. It means basically caused by people. So if it's if it's easier to do it that way, we can use the one word. If, if you just want to say climate change is caused by people, then that's fine too. Um, sometimes you'll see this, sometimes you won't. But this is something that's not always like clear when people just say climate change, and that's where there can be a little bit of ambiguity. So we're labeling this anthropogenic climate change. I'm just going to read to you right now. The opening, or the yeah, the opening paragraph of the summary from what's called the Fourth National Climate Assessment. So, in 1990, Congress um, mandated that every four years, um, a large and diverse group of scientists come together and publish a report on the state of the climate as well as the most re the latest projections about where the climate's headed and likely consequences. <laughs> so, the fourth of these reports, the final part of it, came in. Two parts, the, just the, the what's happening now, and then here's what it means, and here what it, the future looks like. All that was wrapped up about the first of 2018. Uh, <clears throat> so let me just read to you from that summary. Earth's climate is now changing faster than at any point in the history of modern civilization, primarily as a result of human activities. The impacts of global climate change are already being felt in the United States and are projected to intensify in the future. But the severity of future impacts will depend largely on actions taken to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and to adapt to the changes that will occur. Americans increasingly recognize the risks climate change poses to their everyday lives and livelihoods and are beginning to respond. So, really, the first sentence says it all, like that, then it just uh, fleshes that out a little bit more. You can look this up online. There are Volumes. Uh, there are chapters and chapters. There's a, even just the like executive summary is pretty long. I thought about going over all of the areas in which they're projecting ways we need to be watching for the impacts of this change, and that would have taken us 15 minutes just to go over each of the chapters. So, if you're interested in reading more, please take a look. Um, I want to stop there as we get a little sciency. She's a very science, scientific word, sciency. Um, and just say a couple things. First thing is, this is a little overwhelming and, and, and frankly intimidating to be taking on a topic that's so huge and, and complex, touching so many areas that are so interrelated, um, where things are rapidly changing, literally by the day, as far as what, what's in the latest information, the, the state of some of the latest conversations. So the first thing I would say is that I, I'm most definitely an amateur, especially when it comes to science. I am not a scientist. We have some in the room, and I'm not a scientist. Um, but an amateur, one way to explain an amateur is someone who loves a subject or who loves it enough to, to learn what they can. Um, so that's one way. I'm definitely an amateur when it comes to the, the science. I think it's, we're wading into deep waters. Um, the second thing I would say about that, that though, too, and this is kind of true um, <clears throat> of, of, of all the staff, those that have been to seminary, and any of you, you know, who have done some reading or thinking about theology, is I could say, you know, I'm a, I am a theologian, and one funny definition I've heard is that a theologian is an expert on being in general and nothing in particular. <laughs> so, like, these big questions about what, it, what does it mean to be here, to be us, to be me, and where are we headed? But nothing in particular, not an expert on any of those particular things. Um, 
along those same lines, there's an old definition of uh, theology. There's a bunch, and there's no one way, I think, is the best way to explain what all that is. Uh, it said theology is learning about and the study of God, but, but also the study of everything in God or in light of God. Right? And so it's, what does it mean to think about the world in relation to God and ourselves in relation to the world and in relation to God? So that's that part of being an amateur is that no, there's no one person who's an expert on all of those areas that are interconnected. Um, and then the last thing, and this, I mean, those are all important, but um, I really want to say this. Uh, last year, uh, I taught a class, it was actually on Wednesday nights at, at our church in Texas. It was a little like this, not, not quite, um, but we were talking about climate change one night. And I got an email from one of my friends in the church that was in the class, and she said, well, I really enjoyed um, the class, I really enjoyed our conversation. And, and I knew she was genuine, but then, then she said, so when are we going to hear the other side? And I knew she was very genuine, and that, that like, she could very clearly believe there was another side, and she was very concerned that it wasn't being heard. So a couple of things to say about that. Uh, the first is, as far as I am aware, I, I have no reason not to, to doubt from everything I've read that paragraph like this would be affirmed by the overwhelming majority of practicing scientists. I actually was looking just to review something today and it was it was after a YouTube video where someone said 97% of scientists and the first comment was from another who said 97 it really is more like 99.5% of scientists based on some some stuff. So they were they were disputing that. Uh, I guess I just like this. The same people that I certainly trust um, for all kinds of other information about the world are the same ones telling us this. The same one thing. Maybe we don't trust weather forecasts, right? But the same types of people that we trust when I used to live in West Texas for where to drill, right? Where to start fracking in for natural gas. Those same scientists, those are the ones telling us this. Uh, the second thing I would say is I hope you'll you'll you can trust one thing about me that can be a strength and sometimes a weakness is I am always very quick to want to grant as much as possible to another side. That's I'm I'm not one to like to jump the poles. I see Chris nodding. He knows both sides of how that tendency. Um, so there are very complex aspects of this issue, and within people among people who would absolutely endorse or agree with that first paragraph or that first sentence. There are a whole lot of, like, people who agree on that actually then disagree even more um, intensely when it comes to what should we do, maybe, or what are the right ways to be uh, addressing it, like, uh, speaking about this, right? So there's plenty of other areas. Um, and another aspect of this is I do think it's a really dangerous and problematic habit to think that on anything there are two sides, or that there are only two, there are only two sides. Um, there, we get kind of locked into that mindset, in particular as Americans, and, and think that, yeah, if, if, if it's a particular issue, there must be two sides, and there must get equal time, and if not, then we're in trouble. I, I hope that was clear at this point, just that, that I'm not going to assume that there are two sides, but I am absolutely um, aware that there is lots of room for good questions, and we can take those up later. So we could pause here and get right into that, and we might not finish the night. So I'm going to leave that for now, but I did want to say that up front. Okay. So there's climate change, anthropogenic climate change. But that's not all that's going on. Here's, here's one summary that I found really helpful. Again, for a while, we're, we're getting into the despair for the world fear for the world that I and children We face more problems than climate change. In addition to climate change, carbon dioxide emissions are acidifying the oceans, changing the chemistry upon which the largest ecological system on the earth depends. We are overdrawing our supply of fresh water, losing topsoil, over-harvesting numerous species for food and commercial use 
and destroying the habitat of millions of other species with whom we share the world. By one account, overall, 50% of the vertebrate wildlife population has disappeared in the last 40 years. Did you say 4 or 40? 40. So 50% of the overall vertebrate population has disappeared in the past 40 years. I mean, that was one account, but in a variety of areas, studies pointing that direction continue to come out. Much is being lost, and much more is in danger of being lost. What we face, however, is not a challenge to save the planet. The planet will survive. What is more in question is the survival of Homo sapiens and the millions of other species along for the ride in the planet we have remade. We read that last part again. The planet will survive. What is more in question is the survival of Homo sapiens and the millions of other species along for the ride in the planet we have remade. Creaturely Christians and care for our common home. We've gotten to a not very fun place, and what I want to do for the rest of our time is kind of put this place in a little bit of context and then specifically focus on what does this have to do with Christians specifically. Um, <clears throat> Actually, hang on one second. So, I'm, I'm one of the youngish people in the room, which I don't often feel, um, but I'm feeling older and older these days. One, one of the ways in which I feel a little older is, it was exactly 20 years ago, actually a little more than 20 years ago, I was in a class where we were assigned a book um, that started out by saying, these are the wild facts about the world that you need to know. And it sounded very much like that, actually that paragraph in that book I just read. The numbers weren't quite the same, but it talked about the loss of biodiversity, the loss of a number of these species. It talked about climate change. Then they were still using the, the phrase global warming. Um, and then it was talking about the um, loss of the ozone layer, which at a time we were hearing a lot about, thanks to some interventions, that's not the concern that it once was. But so this was 1999, actually, and there was this, these wild facts that everyone should just stop and know before they make their next move. That's how we were supposed to take that book that I read about 20 years ago. And here we are now. Um, what I really wasn't aware of until recently, I, I was aware of this talk that I'm going to tell you about in a minute, but that this was actually more than 50 years ago. There was a, a famous um, talk given by a professor named Lynn White. And I'm going to I am kind of slipping back into Professor mode a little bit with some of these quotations, but this is really, really um, important for us to just slow down and listen to. So the, the, the title of this talk, and this is 1967, right, so 52, 53 years ago, it's called The Historical Roots of Our Ecologic Crisis. Um, before we start, ecology, it's a word we'll get to every, once, uh, every so often. E Ecologic, now we would probably say ecological, but ecology is basically the study of entities or organisms and their relationship to each other and their entire environment. That's basically what ecology is. Okay, so in 1967, Lynn White says, we have a problem. He says, and again, this is how we wouldn't say this as much, we would say humans are natural treatment, but he said, the problem is it's become clear that we're dealing with man's unnatural treatment of nature and its sad results. So there were wild facts 52 years ago as well. They knew things were happening. There was concern already raised. He said, though, the danger is that we'll pay attention to these and maybe address them by doing the, the things that we typically do. And he said, rather than business as usual, we need to think about fundamentals so that we don't simply repeat mistakes. Here's what he really gets at. What we do about ecology depends on our ideas of the human nature relationship. More science and more technology are not going to get us out. And then look at this. 
more technology, science and more technology are not going to get us out until we find a new religion or rethink our old one. So he's saying we need a new religion or rethink our old one. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll dwell on that a little bit, but you can tell just from what he says above. What he means by religion here, whatever else it has to do with, it has to do with how we understand the relationship between humans and nature. He's saying that the religion, whatever he means by that at that point, that has um, that is influenced, that has given birth to the science and technology of his world in 1967, that religion is the problem. So historically, he just points out that when we talk about science and technology that, that's done all of this, that we're talking about this modern world that's been dominated by the West. And so, in, in that sense, West, we mean Western Europe and those countries that are so close to time historically to Western Europe. So, there's just something new that came into the world that this group of countries who all kind of hated each other, many of them fairly small, when it came to the, the 16th century, you know, about the time of Columbus and all of these discoveries. These tiny countries, again, they're all fighting each other, right? They'll spread out over the world, colonize and dominate, in large part due to that um, fusion of science and technology that had been growing and growing in Western Europe. And he says that this was a product of a Christian culture. So there's something distinctive. There's always been science, and there's always been some form of technology in just about every human culture. But something distinctive was happening and took shape uh, in Western Europe, and you cannot understand our modern world, wherever you are in the world, without understanding these deep roots. And he says those deep roots are tied in this culture that uh, was interwoven with Christianity. That was the, the deep story that the science and technology of the modern world kind of was broke out. <coughs> So here's why he say, says that there's this problem. Here's why he says this is both the reason, the, if you want to talk about in terms of the blessing and burden of this Christian culture, he says this is what happens that can help explain both modern science and technology, but also what has gone wrong with them from his perspective. He, he claims that Christian biblical faith does these things. It insists that the world has a beginning and that time moves forward. Right, so he's, he's contrasting this to other, other cultures, other faiths, by saying that God created the world at a particular time. The world wasn't coexistent with God, just always there, maybe just in a different shape. But to say that the world had a beginning is also then related to saying that the world has a story, and it's not just simply a cycle that keeps repeating itself. It's a story that's going somewhere. So biblical faith... It's talked about beginnings, but it's also very much looked toward a future, right? The God of the Bible is the God who makes promises, right? And now we have, for Christians, there's the promise of Christ returning. Part, and, um, there's, there's other promises. But so biblical faith has that linear aspect to it. <clears throat> but especially here he's emphasizing the, the beginning. So it's, it's not God, because God gave it its beginning. A lot of these are closely related. Biblical faith, he says, in Christianity, desacralizes nature. Whereas so many other cultures, so many of the pagan cultures, as they became called, that Christianity replaced, you know, believed that there were spirits, spirits of trees or of water or of hills, right? Those were to be feared and worshipped, and they were just part of the world you inhabit. So when Christianity comes along, those spirits are, are taken away. There's one God, but the creation itself isn't, there's none of these spirits that, that have that power anymore. <clears throat> related to that is the fact that God is transcendent. That's what it means to say that God is not in the world, and that the world is not part of God, but to say that God gave the world its beginning. It's emphasis on God's transcendence. God's going beyond the world. Um, it's part of Christian faith. And then tied to that is some understanding of human beings also transcending or going beyond the rest of creation, or the rest of nature, in this case. It's not using the word creation. So again, back to the poem, right? Just, just think about that tension when, when, when he says, I rest in the grace of the world. And he talks about the world. We all do this. I don't know any other way to do it. We talk about the world as something separate from us. But at the same time, we're in it. 
Um, I don't really know any other way around that, but that's part of what it means to say that transcendence, right? To kind of think about it as something else, right? Um, he also says there's something distinctive about Christianity in claiming that God became human that reinforces this, that there's something unique and absolutely different about human beings than anything else in the world. They're, they're closer to God, they have that image of God, and, that, and part of the image of God is that transcendence of the rest of creation. That difference, that being able to be aware of the difference. He says when you add all these up together with the mandate in, in Genesis chapter 1 of human beings to have dominion over the earth, and in, in his words he says to rule over it, all of this has combined to, in, in especially Western culture and, and science and technology that shape the modern world, to create a relationship where human beings see themselves primarily as apart from nature, and nature there for the use of humanity. And then you can tie that in with that, that first element, of, uh, the first aspect of Christ, uh, Christian biblical faith, of the world having a history. So then there becomes an emphasis on especially a, a kind of technological understanding of progress, right? We move forward because we're always learning more and able to use, to use the world to do more and more and more and more. And so when that gets, when that is happening, that, that understanding is combined with this emphasis on the separateness of humans um, and, and that rule of dominion, you get what we have. You get the ecological crisis. And he's, he's saying that unless we understand that and then go back and find some alternative to that way of understanding ourselves and our place in the world, we will keep getting what we have right now. We shall continue to have a worsening ecologic crisis. Um, he doesn't mince words here, does he? Until we reject the Christian axiom that nature has no reason for existence, save to serve humans. Both our present science and our present technology are so tinctured, that's a $50 word, isn't it? Are so tinctured with orthodox Christian arrogance toward nature that no solution can be expected from them alone. So when it says no solution can be expected from them, he's referring to our present science and our present technology. But he's saying all of those are linked. What he calls, what he calls orthodox Christian arrogance toward nature. Again, so since the roots of our trouble are so largely religious, the remedy must also be essentially religious. Whether we call it that or not, we must rethink and refeel our nature and destiny. So, I don't know if any of you had ever heard of Lynn White or heard of this talk. It, it's been pretty famous in some ways. I, I, most people have never heard of it, but I do think that he had a lot to do with, or he's just one of the most prominent voices at a time, where quickly the, the, the notion quickly spread that Christians, and as they soon became known, and environmentalists are natural enemies. That's what I was taught growing up. I grew up partially in, in Oklahoma City, but we moved to Wyoming when I was in third grade, and I remember my youth group leaders who were wonderful, wonderful people. Uh, probably over and over, I heard, I can, I'd have, I picture one particular Sunday school lesson where they would talk to us about those environmentalists who don't have God, so they worship God's world, that's one of the things we're told, and also because they have no hope for life after death and for another world. They only have this one, and so they, they place too much hope in here and it. And they, they value all these things over people, and they invest everything. You know, they care more about owls. Owls was a big thing, I think, in the 80s. Right? They care more about owls than trees and jobs. I mean, sorry, owls than people and jobs. Um, but with that opposition, that's what I heard. They're, they're Christians and they're environmentalists. <laughs> Again, these were wonderful people. These were people who absolutely loved. This is Wyoming. They're out in the outdoors all of the time. If I read them that poem, they would absolutely identify with going out and just sitting and beholding creation. But that's that's how they had come to see it. That we, that these are mortal enemies. Right? And 
Probably because they've heard other people say, yes, Christianity is the problem. So, how many of you were getting, when you read, when I read some of those quotes, right, we have to get rid of the arrogant Christian, Orthodox Christian arrogance toward nature, or we've got to do away, find a new religion, or the problem is this Christian view. How many of you are like churning inside saying, but that's, that's, that's not real Christianity? And you can erase, how many of you are just kind of wrestling with that? <laughs> I need to sit this guy down, like, and tell him what the Bible actually says, not what people may say. How many of you something like that. Yeah. Uh, so a couple things about that. There's um, this happens a whole lot. Uh, there's a really technical term for it in like debate. Um, but I think to me the, the best example I can think of is like with if you are a fan of a certain team, this is where these kind of passions often come out. And you know like you have rivals and so everyone loves to say one, make one good statement about that other team, right? Like people that go to that school or something, just how horrible, how classless they are, something like that. If they said that about one of your folks, when you, your tendency would be to say, well, but they're not a real baby fan, I'll just say it in my case, right? They're not a real, like, <clears throat> that's not, I mean, maybe that person, but that just shows you that they're not a real, whatever, a real American or a real Christian or a real Baptist, right? Uh, so, a couple of things about that is, first, we, I think we need to acknowledge that whatever else we say about the issues that were raised before, he's absolutely right that this is part of the story of what Christians have done. Not all Christians, but it's a part of the story of who Christians have been. That's just, that's a fact. Um, basically, the idea is like, it's, it's just simply something you can observe. That person who says they are a Christian has said and done this, or these people, it's happened, right? So we, we do need to just kind of acknowledge that. Um, you know, I, there's a couple different ways you can define or understand what Christianity is. I, do, I don't think it's as helpful to reduce, I, uh, I think it'd be absolutely untrue to just say Christianity is about a certain set of beliefs. Uh, it would also be too much of a reduction to say it's just about a group of people to say a sociologist could survey and study all this stuff about. But I think talking about how Christianity is a group of people helps us get closer to the reality. And one of the things about a group of people that are supposedly gathered together because they have some common convictions is that they argue with each other. Right? Um, so one of the things I, I used to teach like world religion, so I, I kind of say this. I think it is always pretty helpful. One of the things that means to be a Christian, or you could say one of the things that it means to be a Jew or a Muslim or a Hindu, is to be in an argument with other Christians about what it means to be a Christian. Does that make sense? But part of what it means is we have this shared story, um, but we're, we're having to always kind of come back and make sure we've got the story right. Because there are these others that claim our same name, and, and we, we, we acknowledge that there's, there's a reason why he was very justified in making some of those claims as just like kind of historical facts. The other thing I, I want to say, and this is where it's uh, a little trickier, those, those things that he was talking about, the, the claims he was making about Christianity, about the world having a beginning, right? About there being, about God being transcended, about human beings um, being capable of a similar kind of that transcendence, right? Being able to see and feel ourselves as both part of the world and separate from the world. Um, those seem to be pretty deeply Christian. And it clearly, in Genesis 1, does use the word, it, it's consistently translated that, that human beings are given dominion over the earth, right? So it's not, there's, there are things that can be said in response, many, many things, and they're really crucial. Um, but I want to make sure that we're also aware that those are, those weren't, you didn't just make those up or come up with some like worst case scenario picture of Christianity when you said that Christianity and the science and technology that it produced was the problem. Does that make sense? <clears throat> okay. So, this, this is the challenge. So tonight, like I said, we start 
by laying beside still waters and hopefully restoring our souls a little bit, and then we go into the, some of the reasons for despair and fear that Mary talks about in the middle of the night. Um, and in particular, though, not only about our the fate of ourselves and those we love, but about the entire creation. Um, I'm sorry, the white doesn't show up as well as, as I thought it was going to. So I want to just kind of do a quick preview of, of where we're headed from here, say a few more things, and then we can, we can talk for a little bit. So next week, I'm really excited. We're going to have a guest, Reagan Sutterfield. Some of you may know Reagan. He is Spencer's brother. He is also Spencer Sutterfield. Reagan was, um, was born and lived out at Lake Nixon in, um, in one of the houses out there. There's like, pictures of him as a little kid. We've gotten to know each other. Um, he is also an ordained Episcopal priest serving at Christ Church down the street. Um, he, in many ways, he needs to be teaching this class. He has written some amazing things. His, he has done and led um, their church to, to do some really um, interesting and inspiring things in, in this area of the care of creation. So we're going to have a conversation, and I want to just interview him about his own journey to kind of figure out the relationship between this, his identity as a Christian and everything that goes under what we're talking about in care of creation. So that's Reagan Sutterfield. <clears throat> Sorry, for those of you who don't know, his dad is, is Ken Sutterfield. Ken was the director of Lake Nixon in the late 70s and late 80s. Maybe you may know Ken as well. Okay, the next week... Uh, we're going to do more of a, a deeper dive. It'll be more conversational. We'll talk more about the Bible um, and ecology. And you could do six months, six years, just on that topic. But we'll, we'll hit a few lessons. The next week, um, so one, one way to think about where we're headed is um, every week we're reminded to, to love God and to love our neighbor. Right? And to do it as if everything depended on it, as it does. Well, if our neighbors include these other members of creation. We're going to hear from an ecologist. She's actually a retired ecologist. She's a professor emerita from uh, University of Arkansas, Little Rock. And she's going to basically come, this will be the, you get to hear from an expert. She's going to talk to us about our local ecology. So it's kind of like, who are our neighbors and what are the headlines in our neighborhood? It's kind of one way of thinking about that. The last two weeks may change a little bit, kind of depending on, on, on where things go with us. I'm also trying, um, working on maybe getting another guest or two, maybe kind of a panel in those last two weeks. But some of the issues that I want to make sure we get to um, is talking about one specific element of care of creation or our place of creation, and that's what we eat, um, and also where that food comes from, and how is thinking about those, I, those, those concerns as far as like how is the food we are eating grown, where is it grown, all of those things, how is that related to concern for those who simply don't even have enough to eat? Uh, I used to work in this world and it was often those were seen as completely separate discussions and it's like, you can't talk about this one, uh, you can't talk about a care of creation and food for like ethical food sourcing, if you want to use those terms. If you do that, you're distracting from the fact that people don't have enough food. Um, and so that's something that I've wrestled with quite a bit. Um, we'll talk about that some, but we may focus in particular on eating because there's a whole lot that our faith has to say about what we eat. Why we eat. Um, and then ecology, economics, justice, and race. Um, we want to talk about how do we keep together if we're talking, if we're bringing other neighbors into our care. Right, non-human neighbors, if we talk about we being part of the world. Right? But what about our human neighbors? Um, and especially those who are, as we're addressing these big issues, how do we also make sure that those who are most vulnerable are part of the conversation when we're addressing uh, our care of creation? So last fall, we talked about the church and race, particularly here at Little Rock. Um, we want to ask, particularly, what about racial justice? What, you know, racism, there's a particular modern form of racism, as Jamar Tisby was telling. How does that story connect to this story? And how is our response to both of them? How can our response to both of these issues be linked together? Uh, <clears throat> what I meant to say at the beginning, but I'll say it now, is that 
We've had a lot of in information tonight, and there'll be some more information moving forward, but I really do want this to also be a time for formation or transformation where we think about what do we do next? How should we live? But, but transformation in a deeper sense too, like who are we and how are we part of this world? What does it mean to be part of this world to care for the creation that we ourselves are part of? And then finally, I, I want us to keep returning to that the grace that is the world, the gift that we already have, that it is good that we are here, it's good that the world is here, and before anything else, again, before the despair, the reasons for fear, there we can rest in the grace of the world. We never want to lose sight of that, we want to make sure we try to incorporate that into where we're headed. Um, Another way, another thing I'd like to say as I, as I wrap up this part is um, in addition to talking about these topics, I mentioned the fact that I feel very much um, out of my depth in some places as I'm doing this very much as an amateur. One of the things that I really want to do more than anything and feel most excited about is just introducing you to some really great friends, people who I have found incredibly helpful and that I encourage you all to spend some more time with this group. So one of them, Wendell Berry, I already heard from. Another, you'll see later, um, she's actually a professor at Texas Tech in Lubbock, where I came from. Her name is Catherine Hayhoe, and I'm just going to say her name now. We'll talk more about her later. Um, <clears throat> another important resource that I'm going to be drawing from a little, but I just want to make you aware, um, is... So, Lynn White wrote that essay, basically saying, if you read it one way, it sounds like Christianity is the problem, and until we get a new religion we will not make any progress or address the ecologic crisis, as he calls it. But then he says, but there is this alternative Christianity that is best symbolized by what he calls the most radical Christian since Christ. And he's talking about Francis of Assisi, who I know some of you know a decent amount about because you spent some time in Italy. Uh, <clears throat> so, Francis is known for a lot of things in the popular um, imagination. He's pretty much just kind of a hippie. Um, and that's something we can talk about a little more. Um, but Lindwall proposed that, and here he's kind of really talking to everyone, not just Christians. He, at times, he sounds as if he is a Christian. Sometimes he sounds as if he's most definitely not. But here he proposed that, that Francis of Assisi become the patron saint of all ecologists. And that idea really took off. I mean, this is 1967, so, I mean, there were lots of babies, literal, at the time, who found a lot of inspiration from Francis. Um, <clears throat> but where does that name came up? Then where does the name Francis um, come into kind of the public, even global public uh, awareness just recently? With Kurt Pope. With yeah, Pope. right. So, <coughs> Pope Francis specifically took as his name uh, Francis, in part, because he wanted to be, uh, you could say, green pope. Um, he wrote about a couple of years um, into his pontificate, his time as pope. What's called an encyclical. These are these uh, major letters, te teaching documents, and um, there are certain ones in particular that, for about the last 150 years, that popes have written on social and political issues. There's a particular tradition. They all kind of build on each other. And this one was addressed to all people of goodwill. Um, it's, it's, the English translation is praise be to you. It's usually referred to by its Latin name, Laudato Si. But these are the first words of one of St. Francis' favorite hymns. It's our version of it that we often sing is the All Creatures of Our God and King. So one of these nights we're going to start or end by singing All Creatures of Our God and King. But, so this entire document is really, really um, rich. It's written to all people of goodwill, because to all people who share, and this is actually where I got the phrase, On Care for Our Common Home is the subtitle. Um, but what's significant about Francis is, what, what, what's, what else is noteworthy about him? Yeah, St. Francis, right. Okay, and this time I'm talking about the Pope, too, so the prayer of St. Francis. So yeah. What else is noteworthy? What's particularly noteworthy about Pope Francis? He comes from 
comes from a less Western yeah. background yeah. than most popes. That's right. So he was the first non-Western, non-Europe, in modern times, non-European pope. He's from Argentina. And particularly on his mind, and his heart, most, the majority of his visits have not been to Western countries. One of his very first appearances was to this island in the Mediterranean where all kinds of refugees um, had been washing ashore and were struggling. Like, those kinds of concerns, the plight of people, especially in the global south, uh, is who he has continually wanted to speak up about more and more and more. And so what's very significant about this, this, this document, um, Praise be to you, or Lord Otto C, is how much he continually says it's all woven together. He uses this term integral ecology all the time. We're caring for creation. We have always got to do this in the same way that cares for the least of these. And here he's talking about our human brothers and sisters, especially across the world. That these are all linked together. When we address one, we're going to address the other. So that's why I think he is in particular a voice that needs to be at the table. There are others, but those are some of the ones I wanted to share with you today. Alright, um, if some of those wild facts, hearing Lynn White was cause for even more fear and despair, I thought I had one more slide. I'm just going to leave it. That's the, that's the video. Okay. I would just encourage you as homework in the next week to, to go find somewhere to sit down or even lie down by the Woodrick and Aaron and receive some of that grace of the world. Look forward to y'all being here next week when Reagan is here. I mean, really, Reagan uh, <coughs> has thought and lived um, deeply about all of these issues. And we're going to be blessed with this time here. Uh, it's actually 6.59, but can we stick around for a few minutes? Yeah. I know I talked a whole lot, and like I said, I, I would prefer to have much more dialogue as we go on, but I uh, wanted to make sure we just kind of covered. We, Lay it all out, and then we can start the meeting. So, any questions? Andy, just a couple things I'd like for you to speak to tonight. One, I often hear people be utterly confused at the distinction between weather and climate. Yeah. It's 100 degrees, or it's uh, actually it usually works the other way around. Most people think of it in terms of global warming. It's snowing outside. Utterly false that the globe is warm. So, help us understand the difference between weather and climate, which I know is pretty simple, but yeah. that may be a good starting place. And secondly, to your point, none of us are really professional climatologists or ecologists, just like most of us aren't professional medical doctors. And so, we live trusting the communal wisdom of those who are. So for the people who would tend to say this, this, this is a fictive, imaginative problem, how, how would you respond to those people? So I guess two yeah. questions. Yeah. So <clears throat> I think there might be even better analogy I've heard, but the first analogy that comes to mind um, <clears throat> when we, when we uh, talk about weather versus climate is <clears throat> So a person can have a personality, right? You can you get a general sense of their personality that they can do some things that are out of character, right? And that can change from day to day. But overall, you have a sense of their personality. Does that, that make sense? So climate would be the personality of the atmosphere, one way of talking about it, right? That's the, those are the general patterns and trends. Whereas from day to day, the day to day actions, that would be like the weather, right? People can do things that might be a little surprising, but overall, you have a pretty clear picture of the personality. Climate would be, again, like the personality of the atmosphere, and weather would be those individual actions. Is that? So, so the, the point of that is, right, if, it, if it's minus 10 tomorrow, and say we don't get above freezing for two weeks, does that mean climate is changing? Because no, we're, we're talking about centuries. And, and, and again, that big, big word, anthropogenic, when scientists are saying it's, it, the climate is changing as a result of human activity, they're all fully aware that the climate has ebbed and flowed over the centuries and the millennia. I, did, I was in a geology class when I was in college, and I used to listen to 
talk radio, and I thought I was going to debunk this climate change stuff. So I found a couple studies that said that it had been a lot colder for 100 years, about 800 years ago, and I said, see? Because <laughs> I was a so that's what sophomore means. Did you know that sophomore means that you're a wise fool? <laughs> you you got to enough to make yourself dangerous. Um, so everyone is making these claims. They're fully aware that, that we've had ice ages. There was a time when you could grow wine in England. I mean, you know, it's like the, there's been those ebbs and flows. But the rapidity of change. And again, to say change, you don't hear warming as much because that. Partly it's to, to, to head off that concern. Well, you know, this year, 4th of July, people were wearing jackets and we were watching fireworks in Little Rock, Arkansas. That does seem a little weird, right? Like, see, I mean, and there are probably people scoffing at oh, global warming. But climate change is about longer term trend that's changing the underlying conditions. Like how a personality can truly change over time, but you've got to have a while to see that. I'm sorry, the second part was. Uh, this might be okay. It's maybe too much for us to dive in at this point, but just how much we trust the scientific community and their near consensus as much as the scientific community ever has consensus right. about anything. Like, why do I believe smoking is linked to cancer? Right? Why, why do I believe that Mars exists, though I've never been? You know what? We all give credence to basic scientific consensus. So what would you say to someone who says, why should I trust the scientists on this? Or can I trust the scientists on this? Right. I mean, and, and so to not, not to play gotcha, but yeah, it would be the sort of question you just asked. Okay. So, I mean, how many activities a day do you trust the scientists? Do you trust the scientists who inform the technology that designed your car? You know, that's going to break. You know, they want to accelerate when you want to accelerate. I mean, it could be as simple as that. You know, I... I used, I threw out just very briefly that example of, and I don't mean to be snide about this, but um, I remember reading one time, I thought it was a pretty good point, um, especially because I've lived in West Texas. It's like, you know, a, a, a biblical fundamentalist in West Texas who um, outright rejects all talk of evolutionary science will also take the word of science informed by evolutionary theory when they're deciding where to go for oil. I mean, that's, I mean, not all of us can relate personally to that. Um, I mean, I guess the other thing, too, is that one of the, the weird things, there's, we can ask a lot of questions of why, what's the personal benefit? And I hear some charges, and I don't think any of them make a lot of sense. But what would the personal benefit be to people, like, and it's not like one or two that everyone just followed after, like, sheep, to all of the thousands and thousands and thousands of scientists that would be publishing things like this, if they were just doing it for some, you know, personal I mean, there's, there's much more to say about why we react the way we do, why we believe some things, and why we don't. And you've addressed some of that before. And uh, Catherine Aho has a lot of these great little short videos where she really gets at this. And so maybe we could be worth taking some more time with that. Is it your premise that only Christian cultures have created large-scale ecological damage? I don't. I, I, that was Lynn White's. I think there is great merit. There are, there are places where um, he's been critiqued, and I can get into that, you know, since 1967. Um, but I think clearly there's something distinctive about where the West was, the West was by like, the 16th century, and something unique about uh, the comedy, the link. As he puts it, like the cultures have had science and they've had technology. The way that they became fused in a particular way in the late Middle Ages. And again, he's got an argument he develops there that's, that's fairly convincing. There are some places where I don't, I mean, I can raise some questions. Uh, I, I can't answer that other picture. I'm not, I'm not necessarily agreeing with every one of his claims that, that Christianity is the problem. But he's speaking from someone in a culture that's been heavily influenced for thousands of years by some beliefs that didn't. I, I, you could also say that they didn't follow them directly from the Bible, although some of those are there. But other influences may have contributed to reading the Bible in certain ways, highlighting certain things. I think that's probably true as well. Is there something more you wanted to say along those lines? Well, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with the fact that Christian culture has created what you, but I'm just saying I don't think it's exclusive. I think sure. it's a human problem. Oh yeah, yeah, all over the world. Yeah, and, and, and I think there's, there's there's a place for that. 
uh, but he's talking about, when we talk about modern and the way that the, these particular habits uh, and patterns are spread, I think there's a very clear connection. But he does also talk about, uh, he mentions Francis as if he's like this one example out of the only other Christian besides Jesus. It kind of sounds like that. But he talks about like other, other non-Western, like Eastern Christian traditions that, um, or even earlier Christians, when they looked at creation, they saw the world, much as in the poem, although Mary doesn't make it very explicit, that the world is how God speaks to us. We, we hear God when we look at the world, just and it's a, sometimes they talked about the two God's two books. There was the book of the Bible and just the book of creation. And we can hear God just by studying creation. He said there's a little bit, there's a, a really crucial difference when you start to hear, and he sees this more in the late Middle Ages with um, certain Christians started thinking more about being able to think God's thoughts after God. So you look at the world not to just hear from God what you see, and you see the lilies or you sit there by the parent, but to think God's thoughts about what is making all of this work. And um, I don't think there's, there's something absolutely illegitimate about doing that, but he says there's a big difference once you take that step to then having a certain kind of mastery and stepping even further back from the world and just having something to say to you. And now you're able to analyze it, to completely objectify it, and just put it to your use. So, again, that's not to say that Christians are the only ones who are capable of doing that by any means. But that is the story we've inherited, and that's the history we've inherited. Anyone else? Would y'all like to hear the poem again before we go? <laughs> I hate to have laid too, too much heavy on you and then have you depart like that, but uh, uh, I'm glad, I'm aware, very aware, right, that we're talking about care of creation, and we'll be talking about some of the practical implications of that, and I've just printed off a bunch of copies and given that to you, so I do want you to have that in front of you. I hope you will take that with you, um, because I, I think I'd like you, they'll refer back to those words, but if you're not, please read the papers, um, give them to me, I will. Um, but thank you all again. Um, invite friends for next week. I really think you're going to appreciate Reagan, who he is, and what he'll have to share with us.